Hey church, today we are starting a new four-part series that we have called Where's God When It Hurts? We're so aware that in so many different ways, just how much so many of us have suffered over this last year. And we really wanted to make space to look deeper into some of what the Bible has to say about suffering. But let me encourage you, as we go through the next four weeks, if this impacts you, if this resonates with you, please reach out. Uh, we, we'd love you to connect with us. Speak to your life group leaders, speak to your mentors, uh, your friends. We need each other if we're going to walk through suffering well. Over the last 20 years, I've experienced all kinds of suffering. And as many of you know, just over a year ago, I experienced once again the suffering of death and grief, of losing uh, three of my friends in close succession, one to disease, one to addiction, and one to suicide. And I know firsthand that suffering can destroy us spiritually if we don't deal with it biblically. So I'm kicking this series off with a brief uh, look at arguably the Premier League book on suffering in the Bible, and that's the book of Job. We're going to see in this story a man who endures horrific suffering. He has everything stripped away from him that could be precious to a person. All of his possessions and all of his wealth, all of his children, all of his honour, his health and even the support of his closest friends. And the way this man responds to this horrendous suffering is nothing short of outstanding. And what I think draws people back to this story over and over again is not the depth of Job's suffering, but more the seeming senselessness of it. At least from Job's perspective, because he doesn't know what we know about this story. See, there's suffering in the world that makes sense to us, like if you go out and drive a car uh, having uh, drunk alcohol and you lose control of the car, you crash it and you lose your license. That makes sense to us, right? It kind of serves you right. It makes sense to us if an armed robber gets bitten by a police dog on the way out of the bank. Uh, we'd say he gets what he deserves, right? It makes sense that when people play with fire, they get burned. But what about when an innocent young child is in the park one day and gets mauled by a dog? What about the innocent single mum pushing her pram up the road and gets hit by the drunk driver before he crashes his car? What about the pastor who's dedicated his life to serving the church and ends up with a brain tumour. That doesn't make sense to us at all. Suffering can be so hard to make sense of, but we can, all of us, identify with Job in some way because all of us have suffered in some way, shape or form, and it just doesn't make any sense. Job's suffering seems to come from nowhere. Why does Job suffer? Well, you know what? 
We don't know. We're never told why. I mean, you can speculate as to why, but we're never actually told in the scriptures why Job suffered. And actually, that's not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book, as we're going to see, is not to answer the question why, but to answer the question how. How should God's people react when they suffer? James writes in his commentary on Job in James 5.11, You have heard of Job's perseverance, other versions say steadfastness, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So let's dive into this passage and see a man who perseveres, who's steadfast under trial. Job 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and this man was blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Here's Job, a man of no small stature, significantly wealthy, the greatest of all people in the East, we're told. And he's not only wealthy, but unquestionably godly. Verse 1 says, blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. Now, Job isn't perfect, but Job's heart was pure and he loved God, and it was demonstrated by his action actions. I mean, this is a guy that rises early in the morning to offer sacrifices for his kids just in case they might have cursed God. (laughs) And this wasn't just an isolated incident. We're told he did this regularly. Moving on to verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered, Uh, answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, for no reason? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around his house, him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. 
But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on this man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. See, suddenly we see here in verse six, the whole scene shifts to the, uh, what the apostle Paul calls in Ephesians, the heavenlies. It's the world of invisible realities. And this is no fantasy world church. This world is as real as the seat you're sitting on or the bed that you're lying in or the ground that you are standing on. It's the domain of angelic powers and authorities. And according to scripture, it's where the real action takes place. Every event throughout the whole of human history, big or small, good or evil, seen or unseen, has its origin here in the heavenlies. So here we find ourselves in the heavenly court. The ministering angels assemble themselves before the Lord. And in the midst of them, we see Satan, the devil. And a good question to ask at this point would be, what is he doing there? When is Satan, the evil one, uh, permitted into God's presence? And look, let me say, for sure, this is a mystery. We don't, we, we know that God is holy, that he can't even look upon evil with favour. And there's no explanation and there's no footnotes, but we know somehow Satan has access here. And God says to Satan, have you checked out my servant Job? That godly man. There's no one like him, he says. Okay, so Satan is roaming the earth looking for someone to devour. His whole aim is to cause destruction and evil and suffering and chaos throughout the world, particularly homing in on God's people. And God then says, check out my servant Job. And we're kind of dumbfounded. We're thinking, God, you're not supposed to draw attention to godly people like this. I mean, it's like finding a burglar snooping around in your neighbor's front garden uh, and he's trying to find his way into their house and it's like you sticking your head out of the window and going, psst, there's a window open around the back. <laughs> it just seems wrong. Well, unless you really don't like your neighbors. Anyway, Satan replies, I've seen him and I know why he serves you. It's because you give him what he wants. He serves you out of his own self-interest, not out of love from his heart. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. This is Satan, the devil, and his accusations. Satan, if you like, is throwing down a wager to God. And God could have said, I don't need to prove anything to you, pal. I know Job and I know his heart is for me. So on your bike. But he doesn't. God wants to show Satan that he is totally wrong. He wants to show Satan and ultimately us that in the heart of Job, 
God was first and center, more esteemed and treasured than anything else on earth. Now, there are a number of things we can learn from this encounter to help us have a clear perspective on our lives and of suffering and our walk with God. The first thing I think we can learn from this, uh, this encounter, is that Satan is limited in what he can do to cause pain and suffering upon God's people. God is the one who sets those limits. The enemy uh, can't make a move on you or me without getting permission first from the Almighty. That's got to be somewhat comforting and encouraging, right? It kind of feels like Satan is on a leash, if you like. God's got him on a leash and God only permits him or doesn't permit him to do things that aren't part of his purpose and plan. The second thing we can learn from this encounter is that there is a hedge of protection around God's people. And this should be super encouraging to us. This is a super encouraging truth. Now, it's true in Joe's case that this hedge does get removed uh, as we go further on in the story, but only for a limited time. And then we see at the end of this story, when this test is finished, God honors Job and blesses him with way more than he had in the beginning. Psalm 91 verse 11 says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Church, we're guarded. There is a hedge of protection around us. And this hedge from God really ensures that we're able to grow in Christ likeness and extend his kingdom into the world. Because if this hedge, this God wasn't there, we'd be just like putty in Satan's hands as we were before we knew Jesus. And this should be comforting and encouraging to us. The third thing we can learn from this encounter is that Satan's goal is to destroy our faith in God. You know what I'm talking about here. It's when he tries to convince us that this is all false, when the reality is it is real and true. And you know that the devil uses often two major weapons to achieve this, pain and pleasure. He uses pain to make us think that God is powerless and cruel and he uses pleasure to make us feel like God is redundant and we don't really need him anyway. See, the enemy failed to turn Job, uh, Job away from God during the days of his pleasure and prosperity and now he's going to try and work on him in the days of his pain. We must remember, church, that in all circumstances, pleasure and prosperity or pain, we need to make God our greatest treasure and hold him above everything else. The fourth thing we can learn from this encounter is that God's great aim is to magnify his worth in the lives of his people. 
Satan wants to destroy our faith, whereas God wants to grow it and flourish it. God wants us to hold him above all earthly treasures. That's what God is seeking for Job. And that's what he is seeking for us through every trial. So let's get back to the text. This wager has been thrown down at God. This hedge of protection has been dropped and Satan's like, let me have access to this guy and we'll really see what he's made of. And God says, okay, from verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the house of the oldest brother, at the oldest brother's house, sorry, a messenger came to Job and said the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has, has, has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking, in, drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they are dead. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. This is a whole torrent of terrifying events in quick succession. All of Job's earthly possessions gone in one foul swoop. But even beyond all of that stuff, the heartbreaking news comes. Uh, and it must have shattered him when he finds out that all 10 of his children have died. Can we even begin to imagine the measure of grief he must have suffered? And bear it in mind that Job has no idea what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't know anything about this encounter between God and Satan. He doesn't know what we know. So to him, this must seem utterly senseless. But see his response here in verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job is such an incredible example to us. In the midst of this trauma and loss and extreme suffering, what does he do? He worships. He might say, well, how can any man worship at a time like this? And really, there's only one answer to that. And that is that Job's comfort is only found in the sovereignty of God. 
the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He's like, I don't understand God what's going on here. I don't know why this is happening to me, but I know that you have everything in control. So I'm trusting you. See, there's a light in Job's soul that Satan cannot extinguish. And that's the faith in Job's heart. The story continues in chapter two, and I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. I'll just kind of abbreviate. But in a nutshell, similar to in chapter one, in the first scene that we saw, Satan appears before God and God points out the godliness of his servant Job. And he says, Job is still faithful to me, even though you, Satan, provoked me to harm him. And then Satan says, well, the only reason he's faithful is because he hasn't experienced any personal physical harm. So again, God removes this hedge of protection around Job, puts a leash on Satan and he goes after Job again. But this time the consequences are just more devastating. Now Job is messed up. He has got sores all over his body. He's totally isolated because in Old Testament times, if you uh, had an infection, everyone would pretty much stay away from you. In fact, later on in the story, we're told that his body gets way worse and it's pretty graphic and gross. Uh, but also he loses weight, his bones are aching and he eventually is tormented by night nightmares. And then Job's wife has had enough. She's endured the loss of all of their possessions. She's endured the loss of all her children, but she can't endure the loss of her husband who is fading away before her very eyes. And really, in essence, her faith falls apart. And some of you know this, that when we're in this kind of immense pain and suffering, we say things and we do things that we wouldn't normally say or do. Job actually tries to correct his wife's comments, but think about this, they're both in this together. They both don't understand why this is happening to them. But Job holds on. He knows that God is always good and ultimately always in control, even in unbearable, unbelievable circumstances. God doesn't allow anything to happen to us that he's not using for his purpose. And we must trust him in it. Job says in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? This is an amazing statement from Job, affirming his trust in the sovereignty of God. I mean, at this point, Satan must have been fuming. <laughs> then it goes on to talk about Job's three friends. They rock up and they pretty much find Job in the local city dump. And he's, they're pretty much taken aback at the state of their friend. When they find him, we see in verses 12 and 13, they weep aloud. They tear their clothes and they throw dust over their heads. And before we write these friends off, because if you know the story of Job, you'll know that later on in the book, they say a whole load of things which are really unhelpful and just flat out wrong. But here, in this moment, they really grieve for their friend. 
They weren't frauds. In verse 13, it says they sat there for seven days and seven nights with Job and they didn't say a word. They were just with him in his suffering. I think we can learn so much from Job's friends here about how to engage with people that are suffering, especially at this time in this pandemic. Sometimes it's about just being there with our friends and not saying a thing, not trying to come up with the best answers or theological statements about their suffering, but just being present with them in their pain. Now, look, you'll be pleased to know that I don't have time to go through the other 40 chapters of Job, but to give you a snapshot, Job's situation at this point continues to go downhill. Things continue to get worse. And he asks uh, some pretty major questions. He never gives up believing in God, but he argues with God. He says to God, come down here. You show up, you know, explain yourself. And he's quite aggressive on a number of occasions in his questions to God. He then got his friends uh, in his ear saying, you know, you've got some hidden sin. You need to just confess up. And they're saying to him, that's why people suffer. It's God's judgment on them. So they must have done something wrong. But let me tell you, we know that Job hasn't done anything wrong. But Job basically gets to this point where he's just wanting to die. And at that point, God shows up and reveals himself to Job in such a powerful way. God then has this long message for him. And at the end of this message, Job is silent, speechless and devastated and he repents. None of the questions are answered in why all these things have happened to Job. But what does happen is that God reveals himself to Job. And after that, Job's okay. What we need in our suffering is a revelation of God. We need our friends to be with us when we suffer, but they're not the answer. God is the answer. We need to meet him in our suffering. When we suffer, our vision of things can get really distorted and we can have all kinds of crazy thoughts. And in those times, we need to grasp a greater vision that's bigger than ourselves. We actually don't need explanation, but we just need an encounter with Almighty God. So look, this has been a bit of a Job whistle-stop tour. But in this story, we learn so much about God, that he is all wise, that he is all loving, that he is absolutely in control. The biggest difference from Job's life and ours is that we have we have Jesus. Many of us in our time of suffering can find comfort from the book of Job. But the source of true comfort for us is found in Jesus, who provides for us strength and grace to endure suffering with his presence and power. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk way more about all of this. Amen. Amen.